0: A new documentary from a leftist filmmaker claims that Norma McCorvey or Jane Roe, the plaintiff in Roe v. Wade, made a deathbed confession that she faked her pro-life conversion and was paid by Christians to pretend to be pro-life. Conveniently, we can't ask Norma because she has been dead for three years and nobody but the filmmakers have the full unedited interview. The Georgia Supreme Court rules that a father demanding parental rights for his child that is being adopted forfeited those rights when he offered to pay to abort the child. (laughs) We will examine pro-abortion gaslighting and douse it with reality. I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted. Welcome to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. Thank you for tuning in today. Uh, We've been having more listeners, more young people tuning in, a lot more reviews of people saying that they're really appreciating the show and it's helping them to defend life. So we appreciate that, especially because we do occasionally get some leftist pro-abortion trolls who leave nasty reviews and one stars to try to drive down the ratings. So thank you so much. If you haven't done that yet and you're enjoying Unaborted, head on over to iTunes, give us a rating and review, give us those five stars, let us know what you think. Believe it or not, it actually does help us move up the charts, and then we um, are able to. Reach more people and uh, more people are able to be exposed to the show so a recent alleged bombshell piece of news has hit the pro-life movement and the pro-abortion serviles are very excited about it because it enables them to adjust their narrative to pander to more people whom they want to indoctrinate with pro-abortion ideas and that alleged bombshell report is that a is is comes from a new documentary From FX, which comes out, uh, which comes out Friday, actually the day that we're recording this, but last week uh, as of your time listening to this. And the documentary is entitled AKA Jane Rowe. And this documentary alleges to report that Norma McCorvey who is the woman's real name who was Jane Roe in the Roe versus Wade decision was paid to be pro life this is the alleged deathbed bombshell confession that she makes in the documentary that she was never really pro life that she was paid to say pro life things she was coached on a pro life script and that she's actually still pro choice now There's a few things that you need to know about this documentary before we get into the details. Firstly, the filmmaker's name is Nick Sweeney. Nick Sweeney is a gay pro-abortion advocate who has done some extremely strange, perverted, and weird films. Okay, so there's already some reasons to maybe suspect the motivations of the team that made this film. Nick Sweeney's other movies include Secrets of the Living Dolls, which is a documentary about grown men who put on rubber face costumes to look like female live-action dolls. So that was one thing he was interested in making a documentary on. His other documentaries inc- include My Transgender Kid and Transgender Kids Camp. So if you're nine, if you're six, whatever, if you're a boy and you think you're a girl, you're a girl, you think you're a boy, you're prepubescent. Come on to camp, you will encourage you in your self delusion and your gender dysphoria, which i I'm not discounting the reality of that's a very real thing It's very horrible. But they're going to encourage kids in that delusion and bring them together at camp. He makes a documentary about these things. So this is the filmmaker of the AKA Jane Roe new FX documentary releasing Friday, May 22nd. A few more points to be aware of because this is erupting a massive debate in the pro-life movement right now. Because one of the one of the claims to fame of the primary claim to fame of Norman McCorvey and a real win for the pro-life movement was converting her to the pro-life position. The very woman who was used as the plaintiff in Roe v. Wade in 1973 to legalize abortion later became pro-life and said that she would spend the rest of her life undoing the decision that bears her name. But now, apparently, allegedly, that was all A sham so first of all i'm not going to i'm not going to trust the journalistic integrity of a filmmaker who believes that boys can be girls and girls can be boys that children should be encouraged in their gender dysphoria and that babies aren't persons if your moral compass is so skewed that you can't arrive at reality on those various issues why should i respect or expect any type of integrity in your journalistic pursuit of truth, to tell a story, to make a documentary on a woman who is very strategically aligned to fit the type of narrative that you want to build. Because if you can say that, oh, the very person who legalized, who was the plaintiff to legalize abortion later became pro-life, she actually never was. She was always pro-choice. That's a great selling point for your narrative. Furthermore, Nick Sweeney's interview with Norma began in May 2016 and ended with her death in February 2017. So for less than a year, Nick Sweeney was meeting with Norma McCorvey, having interviews, and this was all within the last several months of her life. So Sweeney has been sitting on and editing this content for this documentary for over three years, and it's highly unlikely that the full, raw, unedited footage of those interviews will be released. So one has to wonder why he needed to sit on that footage for three years, unless it was to selectively edit the content he had to push a narrative. Again, I'm not saying that's what happened, but one has to wonder. Furthermore, Norman McCorvey is, of course, dead and is another opportunity for the left to rewrite history along lines of their partisan narrative. Norma McCorvey can't speak for herself. She can't say whether this is true or false, and this is becoming a theme with the left, rewriting history on historical figures who are now dead so that they can make uh, history fit their partisan goals. Furthermore, friends of Norma's have confirmed that she did have mental health issues, and being in the last several months of her life— It's not unreasonable to suppose that maybe some of the things she was saying in this interview were not coming from an entirely sound mind. So Jason Jones, who's a pro-life advocate, activist, and filmmaker— said in a public statement on YouTube, Norma did struggle with mental illness, especially towards the end of her life. Norma and I had conversations, and I know that some of her struggles went to deep and dark places. And Jason Jones said that her and him and Norma had been friends for years. Rebecca Kiesling, who's a pro-life speaker and was conceived in rape, and so she she speaks up for the children who are killed uh, because they're conceived in rape, also knew Norma McCorvey and spoke at a handful of pro-life events with her. She put this post up on Facebook And she said, Norma had serious mental health issues and lots of people in the pro-life movement knew it. So the people who were in the movement with her, who were at events with her, some of them who mentored her are saying a lot of people knew she did have mental health issues. And these interviews for this documentary, which allegedly claim that she was never pro-life and she was paid to pretend to be pro-life, all happened in the last several months of her life. So one has to wonder Whether she was entirely of a sound mind, Uh, we're going to get to a New York Times article next, Uh, of course, a garbage piece from a garbage publication uh, saying that Jane's Rowe pro-life conversion was a total con. But first, we're offering a new feature here at Unaborted. Uh, Starting soon, we'll be taking some time at the end of each show to look at your questions, answer any questions you have about the culture, about the abortion debate, about faith. Um, and about politics, and uh, we'll answer those for you, and just continue to equip you to defend life. So, if you're interested in sending me any questions or having me answer them on the show, uh, simply email those to unaborted uh, at gmail at, uh, or unaborted at sethgruber dot com. I'm sorry, unaborted at sethgruber dot So a New York Times article by Michelle Goldberg um, on May 22nd entitled Jane Roe's pro-life conversion was a con. She says Jane Roe rejecting Roe versus Wade was something abortion opponents could throw in the faces of pro-choice activists. So it is a bombshell that McCorvey has revealed in the posthumous new documentary, a.k.a. Jane Roe, that it was at least in some sense an act. I am a good actress, she said in the film. The movie, which debuts on Friday on FX, also makes clear that anti-abortion leaders understood this. So Goldberg says they've been perpetrating a scam on us all for 25 years. So the claim here is that anti-abortion leaders, otherwise known as pro-life advocates, knew that they were paying Norma to pretend to be pro-life and that this was widely known amongst pro-life leaders. Except Goldberg, who has seen the film and admits as much in her article, only cites one anti-abortion leader to validate this claim that pro-lifers were specifically paying Norma to act like a pro-lifer. And that formerly anti-abortion or pro-life advocate is named Reverend Rob Schenck, who says in the documentary, quote, I knew what we were doing and there were times I was sure she knew and I wondered, is she playing us? What I didn't have the guts to say was, Because I know damn well we're playing her. So that's what Reverend Rob Shank, who helped convert um, Norman McCorvey initially and was involved in her early pro-life activism, says. Except guess what? Rob Shank, within the last uh, decade or so, last several years, decided he actually isn't pro-life and became adamantly pro-choice. And I actually got into a bit of a Facebook debate with some of the people on his Facebook page the other day. And have read at length about his, I guess, deconversion back to the pro-abortion position. And basically, he just says that I came to realize that I would never be in that position, right? Just BS talking line. I'm not a woman. I'll never get pregnant. And I think overturning Roe vs. Wade and criminalizing abortion would do more damage than help because women have learned to become so dependent on the option of abortion uh, that enables them to be irresponsible, uh, sexually irresponsible and avoid the responsibilities that come along with reproducing, reproducing new human beings. So Reverend Rob Shake is now a pro-abortion dude and thinks that we need to continue killing babies in the womb and keeping it legal. So excuse me for not taking his words entirely seriously. But that's the only anti former anti-abortion leader that Michelle Goldberg in this New York Times pieces refers to when she says that anti-abortion leaders knew and understood this. That they were paying her and it's all a scam and they've been playing a scam on all of us. Okay, again, just information to know about whether the claims being made in this film are entirely accurate. The New York Times piece continues and says, In the documentary's final 20 minutes, McCorvey, who died of heart failure in 2017, gives what she calls her, quote, deathbed confession. She and the pro-life movement, she said, were using each other. Quote, I took their money and they put me out in front of the cameras and told me what to say. And that's what I'd say. Now, again, nothing in that confession necessarily insinuates that anything's wrong with that. I'm in the pro-life movement. I get paid to do this full-time because guess what? If I do it full-time, I'm more effective than if I do it (laughs) part-time or on a volunteer basis because I can devote all of my time and resources to changing minds, changing hearts, and saving lives. Same was true with Norma McCorvey. She was speaking all over the country. She was participating in pro-life activism. And so, yes, of course, she was also going to get paid for that. She still had to support herself. (laughs) It doesn't necessarily make it wrong that she was paid. And again, she's saying this in the last few months of her life. We don't know how sound of a mind that she was in. But that's the claim, that it was just an exchange of cash for acting, for acting the part of a pro-life person, even if she wasn't. The documentary claims that McCorvey was paid half a million dollars over the course of 25 years, $500,000. So that's, But that's only $20,000 a year. <laughs> So it's not a very great deal if she was looking to get rich. (laughs) That's a humble amount, even then, to be involved in large-scale pro-life work. Jason Jones, again, the pro-life filmmaker and friend of Norman McCorvey, also said in his YouTube statement, when she was advocating for abortion for the first half of her public life, she made more money than when she was advocating for life. So if you're picking a side and you want to make money, go work for Planned Parenthood. Because Norman McCorvey, after the Roe versus Wade decision, worked in the abortion industry at a clinic for a while before she was before she converted to the pro life movement and to Catholicism. So if she was purely looking to make money and using pro lifers as a way to make money, it wasn't a very good decision. And why did she continue to do that for so long? So that's the question. If Norma's conversion was all a con and she was incentivized by the money from pro-lifers, then why did she keep up this alleged lie for so many decades? Surely she would have realized that she could have made a hell of a lot more than $20,000 a year as the public face for the abortion industry. If she returned to advocating for the pro-choice position, it probably would have been fairly easy for her to get a pretty good job at an abortion rights organization— or even at Planned Parenthood, saying, I'm the woman who helped rein in reproductive freedom and health care and a woman's right to choose, and I stand behind that case. That would have been a compelling message and a compelling person for the abortion industry and rights movement to use to continue to build their narrative and messaging. But she never did that. So if it was all about money, why did she continue to stay in the pro-life movement? All of these are Interesting questions to ask about the validity of this documentary. Furthermore, pro-life leaders and longtime friends of Norma's have responded to the claims in this documentary that it was all a con, saying that her conversion was indeed real. And the primary person who has advocated for the authenticity of Norma McCorby's conversion to the pro-life position is Father Frank Pavone, who is the director of Priests for Life, one of the larger pro-life organizations, one of the older ones. Um, And, of course, a Catholic organization. So Father Frank Bavone tweeted out the other day, quote, So abortion supporters are claiming Norma McCorvey, the Jane Roe of Roe vs. Wade, wasn't sincere in her conversion. She was. I was her spiritual guide for 22 years, received her into the Catholic Church, kept regular contact, spoke to her the day she died, and conducted her funeral. In another tweet, he said, after Norman McCorvey died, I assist the family with this public statement. And then he he links to that statement, which reaffirms her unwavering opposition to Roe weight Wade. Did any of them say anything about a deathbed retraction, meaning her family? Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> so Frank Pavone has been very involved in Norman McCorvey's life for years, visited her in her home, was in many in many ways, her spiritual mentor and s- conducted her funeral, and saying that this is clearly a con by the pro abortion movement to rewrite history along partisan and narrative lines. Recently, pro life leaders sent an open letter to FX chairman John Landgraff and the director of the film, Nick Sweeney, expressing their doubt as to whether the whole story is being told and asking or demanding to see the raw footage of the interviews with Norma McCorvey. That would be very interesting to see, however, I have my doubts as to whether that will be released. Even if all of this is true, though, and Norma McCorvey faked being pro-life for decades, it doesn't really change anything for the pro-life movement because babies are still being killed, (laughs) and abortion is still the greatest evil in the world, and the abortion industry continues to grow and profit off of the killing of children, and pro-life people will continue to be committed to protecting children in the womb. But it could be a strategic attack against the pro-life movement to discredit the pro-life movement further in the public square and maybe in so doing garner up support among more Americans for the pro-choice position. But here's what I suspect this is really about. I suspect that this is really about a massive gaslighting campaign by the radical left to rewrite the history of a woman whose very existence draws into question their ideology. Here's what I mean by that. Because if more young people learn Norma McCorvey's story, right, that— If the woman whose lawsuit brought us legalized abortion and worked in the abortion industry lives with daily regret and became pro-life and spent the rest of her life trying to undo the decision that bears her name, perhaps young people will question the claims of the pro-choice position. If the very woman who reigned in abortion on demand and was so passionate about a woman's right to choose and worked in the abortion industry said, I regret All of it. And I will spend the rest of my breathing moments trying to undo that decision. If a woman of that passion could change her mind so radically to the pro-life position, then perhaps we should question the claims of the pro-choice position in the first place. But if the pro-abortion movement can rewrite the history of that woman to push the narrative that she was actually never pro-life, she was actually pro-choice the whole time, then you can discredit aspects of the pro-life movement and you can garner up support among young people for the pro-choice position. But the left has always attempted to do this, to rewrite history along lines that better fit their narrative. And they typically love to wait until their political opponents are dead so they can't speak for themselves, as they clearly have done. With Norma McCorvey, for example, they did this recently with a conservative hero, Phyllis Schlafly. There was a Hulu miniseries that came out just in April or March on the conservative hero, Phyllis Schlafly, who fought against the ratification of the very pro-abortion equal rights amendment in the 1960s and won. And the miniseries portrays her as a conniving liar with a horrible marriage who was just using the issue of abortion to accrue personal power, but didn't really care about the issues that she was espousing. Meanwhile, the feminists in the film like Gloria Steinem are portrayed as nothing short of superheroes. Right? This is what the left does. They use storytelling and they use Hollywood to rewrite history along lines that attack their political opponents who are no longer alive and can't speak up for themselves and further entrench the ideology and narrative and worldview that they want to send to the culture. The left knows how to tell a good story. And conveniently for them, they have the media and Hollywood on their side. (laughs) And because Hollywood won't even take a film that positively portrays a conservative hero, the left has no meaningful competition. So they can manipulate facts and build entire fantasies around the narrative that they want and that fits their political goals. Because no one can challenge Hollywood in terms of the impact and reach that they have. To reach young people and the exceptions are few and far between. Because for the normal working American focused on providing for their family and enjoying life's small pleasures, a focused political and historical research into the life of Phyllis Schlafly or Norman McCorvey will not be high on their to-do list. Few Americans have the drive or the time to uh check the veracity of claims being made by Hollywood when they rewrite history of political figures. So they come home from work, they grab a beer, they sit down, and they see that this evening uh, Fox is airing a documentary on the life of the woman behind Roe versus Wade. That's interesting, right? Let's check it out. They're moderately pro-choice. They don't love the idea of abortion, but they don't want to impose their beliefs on scared pregnant women who feel that they need abortion. So they watch it. And they learn that the pro-life movement is full of liars who pay poor pro-choice women to pretend to be pro-life to push a pro-life narrative. Furthermore, Norma McCorvey was actually pro-choice all along and just pretended to be pro-life because she needed the money. That's what they learn when they sit down and they watch a documentary from Fox about a figure that they have no reason to question the veracity of their story. Oh, and also decades of high school and college students who write a paper on abortion will utilize the documentary as a source, which will further demonize pro-lifers in the minds of the next generation and further enshrine the validity of a pro-choice position. This type of narrative manipulation is actual brainwashing. This is fake news, right? This is pro-abortion gaslighting. But unfortunately, and For the left, and fortunately for us, pro-lifers, reality has an annoying tendency of reasserting itself in our lives and slapping us in the face and demanding attention. And we're going to get to more of that in just one second. Next, we're going to look at the Georgia Supreme Court ruling that a father demanding parental rights for his child that is being adopted forfeited those rights when he offered to pay to abort the child. Wow, what a story for our times. But first, if you like this show and want to hear more great content and commentary from the front lines of the pro-life movement, if you want to help us reach more young people and pro-life individuals and Christian leaders to defend life, then head on over to patreon.com slash unaborted and become a patron of the show. Show. This is what helps us uh, fund the uh, production cost of this podcast. We want to move to more episodes eventually. We want to have more guests on, and we want to be able to put this in front of young people on social media who are not hearing. Nearly enough pro-life ideas because of the gaslighting, because of the propaganda and manipulation of narrative by the left, and it's very important for them to hear these pro-life ideas. So consider becoming a patron of the show for five, 10, 15, 20 bucks a month, whatever you can, because as Greg Cunningham once said, there are more people working full-time to kill babies than there are working full-time to save them, and we want to equip people to be life savers. So head on over to patreon.com/ unaborted, and we'll be right back with a whole lot more. Welcome back to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. So moving on to a very interesting story that is going to function as a little bit of a A little bit of dousing onto the gaslighting of the left, a little bit of a slipping of the narrative that reveals that self-evident truth that uh, Americans interested in truth will recognize. So apparently a Georgia father is being denied parental rights for his toddler who is in the process of being adopted because he offered to pay to abort his child when his girlfriend or fling at the time was still pregnant. So interesting story. According to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution on May 19th by Maya Prabhu, she says a family can proceed with the adoption of a three-year-old boy after the German Supreme Court, sorry, Georgia's Supreme Court, ruled that the biological father forfeited his rights when he, among other things, offered to pay to abort the child. The Georgia Supreme Court on Monday ruled 6-3 that Lance and Ashley Hall, the adoptive parents, can proceed with their adoption of the boy, determining that Joshua Brumbello, the father, had abandoned his interest in his biological son. We are very pleased with the ruling, and I believe it provides clarity, in contested adoption cases like this one, said Justin Young Hester, the attorney for the Halls, and Jeannie methenia the biological mother the court found that brumbello had not taken steps to prove he was invested in his child until six weeks after he was born yeah you think he did not support the mother financially or emotionally he denied that he was the father he attended only one doctor's appointment and that was to determine the pregnancy timeline to determine if he was the father hester said he made no offers at any time other than the offer to pay for an abortion And he showed no interest in parenting the child. Wow. The father we all long and wish we had. My goodness. In the decision, Chief Justice Harold Melton wrote that one example of Brumbello abandoning his opportunity to develop a relationship with his biological son was offering to pay for an abortion. Yeah, I think that would show that you don't have an emotional interest in raising your child when you offer to pay for his murder. The offer indicated that Brambello wanted no relationship at all with the child, as an abortion would have ensured that no relationship could ever develop, Melton wrote. "Brumbello showed no interest in becoming a father in a true relational sense throughout Methenia's pregnancy, and seemingly expressed an interest only upon discovering that the child would be placed for adoption. Wow, what a degenerate. <laughs> be thankful that you did not have a father like that, I pray. Okay, so this story is interesting, right? This is very interesting because it comes to the question of the rights of men in the abortion debate, which, as you're aware of, are virtually none, right? So if you are a man and you get a woman pregnant, whether she's your wife or not, by the way, it doesn't matter the legal status of your relationship, and she decides she wants an abortion, and you say, no, I'm the biological father, I have parental rights— ...that should be taken into consideration in this decision. No, actually you don't. Thanks to Roe v. Wade and Doe versus Bolton, the two cases that make up abortion law... ...at a federal level from 1973, say that you have no rights as the father. You have none. If you show up at the abortion clinic and try to physically prevent her from entering... ...because she has an appointment to kill your child, you could be arrested. Men have no rights to protect their unborn children. But why deny parental rights? In this case, when this father, Josh, offered to pay for the abortion, it wasn't a baby, right? That's what I've been told. It was just tissue mass. It was pregnancy tissue. It was a potential person. It was a blob of tissue. Why judge parents for how they treat tissue masses? Oh, wait, unless it's not a tissue mass. (laughs) You see, the narrative starts to fall apart. The veil slips and reality starts to invade our lives. We're going to douse this gaslighting with facts. And sometimes stories like this come out that make the pro-abortion narrative impossible to maintain. So a few observations about this case because it's so interesting in how it unsettles the assumptions of the pro-abortion movement. So fathers don't have legal rights to keep their unborn children alive, right? But they can pay to kill their unborn child. Oh, but also, if you do offer to pay to kill your unborn child, then you shouldn't have rights to parent that child if they're born. Wait, what? So which is it? Which is it? Do our choices regarding the life of our unborn children matter? His choice to offer to pay for the abortion or not? Or are they merely trivial and without consequence? You can't have it both ways. Either he has no rights and therefore... His voice doesn't matter, period. It doesn't matter that he offered to pay for the abortion. None of that matters because it's not a person in the womb with rights. Or it is a person and therefore his moral choices should be taken into consideration to the question whether he should have parental rights over the child. Which is it? Here is what this case reveals. It reveals the self-evident nature of the pro-life position that fatherhood and motherhood begins at conception— And how do we know that? How do we know that's a self-evident truth? Because society will judge you based on how you conduct yourself and the way in which you behave as a parent, even to your unborn offspring. Here are some examples of that, by the way, that aren't just regulated to the abortion discussion. How does society look upon pregnant women who smoke? Not very good. Even pro-choice people. You see a seven-month pregnant woman woman going outside for work, smoking five cigarettes, smoking a pack a day? Even pro-choice individuals in society look down on that, don't we? How about pregnant women who go and get raging drunk? Yeah, nobody likes that either, huh? Doesn't that cross partisan lines? How about the man who slips his pregnant wife an abortion pill? You hear these stories happen sometimes across the U.S. and the U.K., I've read these stories. Either a boyfriend or a, pregnant or a uh, husband slips his girlfriend or wife an abortion pill in her drink because he doesn't want to have another baby when she's pregnant, intentionally killing the child without consulting the wife. Anyone like that? Oh, wait. Oh, so you judge the actions of those mothers and fathers even if those parental decisions are only affecting blobs of tissue. <laughs> Exactly. Of course you do, because the self-evident nature is that those are children. They are human beings, and our parental choices matter, even if they're affecting the unborn child. What about a man who refuses to financially support his wife because he doesn't want another child? He just stops providing for her financially because he doesn't want another kid. Yeah, we would look down on that as well. And then, of course, in this case, a man who offers to pay to abort his child. Society considers these people degenerates. Now, when it comes to abortion, they might not. right? They might say, well, you know, whatever. It's it's just a blob of tissue. But only if the mother makes that decision. If the mother makes that decision, then it's fine. She can go get an abortion. But not if she smokes and drinks and harms the child. Then that's wrong. But if she pays the abortionist to kill the child, that's fine, because that's choice in reproductive health care. But if the man tries to pay to abort the child, oh, that's wrong. We don't really like how that feels in our conscience and in our soul because it's just a woman's issue. Do you see the contradictions of the pro-abortion ideology? Why does society consider these types of parents moral degenerates who make these decisions that in turn harm the life of their unborn children? Most people would probably agree that this child should go to the adoptive parents in this case, who have been raising him for the last three years, by the way, and that a father who denies he's the father and never provides financial support beyond the cost for the murder of his child should not be involved, should not be involved in parenting that child or having legal responsibility or protection for that child. Why? But why not? Why do most people think that the child should go to the adoptive parents and not the father? Because if it wasn't a baby in the womb and it was just a blob of tissue, then how can you judge his decisions as moral failures? You can't judge his decisions to try to pay for the abortion of his child as a moral failure because it wasn't a baby. After all, all he wanted to do was pay for the removal of some tissue, right? Wrong. And guess what? We all know it, don't we? We all know That these are babies. The reason most people would agree that this child should go to the adoptive parents and not the father is that his actions were wrong, (laughs) that they were actually morally wrong. He did something bad, but the only way it makes sense to call his actions wrong is if there was an actual child, a human being whose existence somehow mattered and demanded your care demanded you to make the right choice as the father. That's the only way it makes sense to call his choices wrong is if there is a child, another human being involved whose existence somehow matters. If offering to pay to abort your child is wrong enough that a court could rule to take away your parental rights, then how is actually going through with the abortion just reproductive health care? (laughs) If it is... If it is a sufficient moral wrong to offer to pay to kill your unborn child, such that a court says no more parental rights for you, how is it just reproductive healthcare to actually go through paying for the abortion that kills your child? What? Surely, if offering to pay someone to kill your child is wrong, then actually paying someone to kill your child is more wrong. Because you actually went through the process of the thing that you were offering to do. And when you offered to do it, you were critiqued by a court and had your parental rights stripped from you. While the left tries to gaslight us and the next generation into questioning self-evident truths, such as that human life begins at conception and killing innocent human beings in the womb is wrong, sometimes a case like this comes up and pokes gaping holes into the ideology of choice and reproductive health care. Sometimes the veil slips and we glimpse a reality that should be self-evident to all Americans. That all humans are persons. That we all have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that these natural rights began when we began, and the overwhelming scientific evidence is that we began at the moment of conception, and so for human equality to be maintained, human rights have to be granted from the moment we're human. These cases come up sometimes and they expose the dangerous ideas and the dangerous assumptions of the pro-abortion movement. So the pro-abortion movement has to work overtime to keep the narrative together. (laughs) They're like a juggler who's dropping all of his balls and just scrambling to keep them together, to hold them up. And it's everything is falling apart and you look like an idiot to anyone with a functioning prefrontal cortex because we see you and the narrative you've built for the sham that it is. Based on bad ideas and assumptions about human beings and a narrative that is being built so that you can keep a job. So that you can maintain the illusion that we're not killing babies, we're just removing a blob of tissue. Because if we all knew the truth, then you would have been defunded decades ago and abortion would have been made illegal. So you have to keep your narrative together in order to maintain your career and your movement, which profits off of the slaughter of unborn children. And yet cases like this poke a gaping hole into the ideology of abortion. And douse their gaslighting with reality by exposing their bad ideas for what they are, bad ideas that endanger human equality and the lives of innocent human beings in the womb. We can't let the left get away with rewriting history to favor narrative and ideology. And we can use and point to cases like this one to douse their gaslighting with some good old self-evident reality. Well, that's all we have time for, for today. Thanks for joining me. Head on over to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube if you want to watch this show. Give us a rating and review, please. It really helps tell a friend or ask a pro-choice friend to watch this and see if their narrative will get doused with reality. If you want to learn more and engage with me online, head on over to any of my social media accounts or sethgruber.com, that's S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com to sign up for my newsletter, see my speaking schedule, and engage with me online. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted.